Hello everyone and welcome into the show. This is just your quick reminder that these are re-uploads that we're doing from roughly 2017. So this is a conversation from a while ago. Still, that shouldn't change the nature of most of it. We're about to break down all of the first Final Fantasy game for you. Appreciate your support as we get these all re-uploaded. Again, remember we're going to be giving you one every single weekday, starting on the weekend here to get a little out in front. But for more Final Fantasy content, if you can't wait for the next episode, go to patreon.com slash ffweekly. And for way more Final Fantasy content, and also Marvel, Star Wars, DC, Lord of the Rings, any and every nerdy thing you can think of, check out patreon.com slash dcproductions. Welcome in to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we'll be talking about the plot, themes, and characters from the original Final Fantasy game, sometimes referred to as Final Fantasy I, the very first game in the franchise that has now lasted 30 long years. Uh, not seasons, as I <laughs> had originally <laughs> stated. Years, not seasons. Get, get the video game brain on. Final Fantasy was written and directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi, the artistic design is by Yoshitaka Amano, and the music by Nobuo Uematsu, the Holy Trinity, as they would come to be known, at least in our household. That's Uh, what we call them, yes. Yes. Uh, The game was released originally in Japan in 1987 for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and again in 1990 in the United States on the Nintendo Entertainment System. After that, it has been released a grand total of, by my count, 19 different times in later releases, re-releases, remakes, most notably in 2000 on the PlayStation in the Final Fantasy Origins collection, and in 2004 on the Game Boy Advance in the Final Fantasy 1 and 2 Dawn of Souls collection. No matter which version of the game you play, though, you start in the exact same place, the very beginning of our journey for this franchise that means so much to so many, and it begins in an unforgettable way, though an innocuous fashion, with a character select screen. You get four characters to pick from six different classes, and you are out on your way to a journey unlike any other, certainly if you talk about the entire franchise being the journey you're about to embark on. The six character classes you have to choose from are, uh, in the original, Fighter, Thief, Black Belt, Red Mage, White Mage, and Black Mage. And the only update from the original game to the Dawn of Souls remake was that they changed Fighter to Warrior because that would be one of those uh, standardizations of their character classes, and Black Belt to Monk. Uh, Other than that, all the character classes are are the same. So uh, once you have chosen your characters... You appear outside of the town of Corneria. Also the name of the first planet in Star Fox, for some reason. Something we weren't able to see if there was any particular connection. And I also think that might be a Shakespeare reference to Cordelia, but really don't know. So that's the the quick little insert I've got there. Uh, Corneria. In the remake, it's not Corneria, it's Cornelia. So that might be the RL change that you see a lot from Japanese to English. Right. And I think, yeah, translationally speaking, that's what's going on there. But I do think that there's 
there's definitely a reference going on there. I, I think it is a Shakespeare reference without being to knock it down immediately. I think there is a Cordelia reference going on there, especially because you've got yourself a king in this town and a princess who's been uh, kidnapped. Kind of reminds me of King Lear a little bit. It's, it's obviously very loosely uh, based on uh, A thin connection, but perhaps a connection perhaps nonetheless. So, so you start outside of Corneria, and going inside, you immediately get taken to the king because you are obviously the prophesied four light warriors who each bears an, an elemental orb or crystal, depending on your version. And so you're taken to the king because the king's got a problem. And the only people who can solve problems in role-playing games are the main characters. That's right. <laughs> NPCs are useless. <laughs> NPCs have very little use. That stands for non-player characters for anybody who's... If you're listening to this and you didn't know that, I'm shocked. But still, just so we all have our terminology down. It could be that we've got some neophytes along for the ride. And if so, uh, welcome and thank you. And if not, I totally get it. Yeah. So, the first thing you have to do is you got to go save the princess. This is a classic video game goal. It's not that hard. You... Uh, once you gear up and maybe level up uh, a little bit, according to my strategy guide, my Nintendo Power strategy guide. Old school. On page 12, at level 3, Garland will almost certainly fall to the Light Warriors. At level 2, it's more of a challenge, but Garland can be defeated. So what you come to understand from talking to the king and talking to other various NPCs is that Garland was once a soldier of Corneria. He was one of their finest knights. He's a fantastic swordsman. But something's happened. He's, he wants to rule Corneria. He has turned against the king, and he has stolen the princess. So uh, you gear up. You head up to the... In the original version, it was called the Temple of Fiends. In the Dawn of Souls version, they call it the Chaos Shrine. Those are yeah. two very evocative names for your first dungeon. They, they also call to two different main villains in both the game and, quite frankly, throughout the entire franchise. There are, of course, spoiler warning, but this whole podcast is going to be constantly full of spoilers. But there will be four fiends to fend off in this game and, of course, chaos. So whichever name you go with, you're you're invoking great obstacles to overcome at the very beginning of the game. And this is also an example of something Final Fantasy does very well. It, it foreshadows what's coming up. Mm. So to have such a, a grandiose name for such a low-level fight, because it's foreshadowing, you're not necessarily expected to see it the first time through. But it is definitely... It's definitely something that you'll see again and again, this sort of foreshadowing. You know, they, they told you what the end was going to be at the beginning, yep. but they didn't expect you to get it right away because, again, it's foreshadowing. Right. So after you defeat Garland, who did not manage to knock you all down. Right. Our first, our favorite translation quirk. I don't know if it's our favorite, but our first of our favorite translation quirks. I, Garland, will knock you all down. Uh, yes, <laughs> classic. Indeed. Classic line, but Garland does not, in fact, knock you all down. And he, he uses that line in the Dawn of Souls remake, too, which I think speaks to a self-awareness of what, what has become classic through accident as much as design, which 
which is well done to them, I say. Totally agree. That's one of those things you could have fixed and had him say something menacing and cool. But no, leave it in. I Garland will knock you all down. It's not quite on the level of all your base are belong to us in in, in terms of <laughs> just phenomenal, classic, uh, terrible translations. But it's close. It's in that category. In exchange for having defeated Garland and rescued the princess, the king of Corneria agrees to build a bridge to the northern continent, which is where the adventure will really get going. And it's always been of interest to me that rescuing the princess was the first thing to do. It, it wasn't the end game. It was not the thing you had to do to win the game, but rather the thing you had to do to prove your worth to even go on the adventure at all. Yeah, that, that's always been one of my favorite things about it, too, that the game has this kind of opening sequence where they put you in. They And this is something we'll see again throughout the entire course of the series is that they'll put you in a situation where it seems like your first couple of goals are big enough or grand enough or whatever. You're, you're doing something important, but actually there's this much bigger, much more important thing you've got to get involved in. And I really love how many other games that would have been their whole story or even the way Garland looks at the beginning in his impressive armor. That could have easily been a final boss in another game, but they give it to you right away. And it's one of the first indications that you know, in this series, this franchise is going to be something different, something new, and something that uh, doesn't stick to... While it's very much aware of the conventions, it's going to play with them. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such a successful franchise. We talked about the reinvention in the first episode and how big a deal it was. I think this is their first showing of people of like, oh no, we understand what both video game conventions are and what fantasy storytelling conventions are. Here they are. In, but we're going to do the whole thing in our epilogue, you know, or, or in our right. prologue, depending prologue, on prologue. Well, prologue in this case, but you know what I mean? It goes, you know, depending on the game, you, you get your your little bit of genre. You're like, oh, yeah, this is comfortable. And, and I think that's what it is. It's that they know how to both make this thing completely comfortable and familiar while at the same time, totally foreign and new. It's a strong component of Final Fantasy that it's able to do both, uh, and it's something that's kept it fresh. So uh, once you, uh, again, once you've rescued the princess, the king will have the bridge built, and building the bridge allows you to go to the northern continent. And this is where we get the splash page. It's, it's an awful lot like a cold opening in a television drama. They'll do that first scene and, and set up the rest of the show, and then you'll get the theme music, and then you'll get the title card and the credits and whatnot. And in Final Fantasy here, it's almost like a first cutscene, something that would become really big later on. And it, it gives you the, and so the journey begins, and describes, you know, these four light warriors didn't know what lay ahead of them, but each of them had a crystal orb or crystal or crystal hexagon <laughs> yeah yeah there's a little little lack of clarity on the shape of the magical crystally items but they tell you what, what also the wind has stopped and the seas are raging and the earth is rotting this opening title card it's got the picture of the the adventurers looking out over the mountain which is an indelible image of final fantasy 
I really love the way there was a callback to that actually in the world of Final Fantasy at the very beginning. Yeah. There's like a yeah. stained glass painting of that. I absolutely loved when they showed that. And then I wanted to pose to you because I had seen this very recently. Some people calling out, you know, this is an inconsistency or this is a bad translation. This is something that you have to deal with with these early games because how can the seas be raging if the wind has stopped? And so I ask you, is that just a mistake that these guys made? Is that some error in the translation? Or is there maybe something more going on there with the way Final Fantasy, again, likes to play with these conventions? Yeah, I think that is purposeful. I think that that is something that is meant to make clear to us as players that things, that the natural world is out of whack because the magical elemental crystals uh, have lost their light. Uh, it's an indication that the fiends are, are taking power from the world. So yes, in the real world, under normal physical laws, the seas cannot rage if the winds have stopped. However, in this case, because the natural world is as much about magic as it is natural mechanics, both of those things can happen at the same time, and it's an indicator of, of what's wrong in this world as opposed to uh, a mistake. Yeah, I gotta agree. I think it's one of the very early examples of Final Fantasy being an amalgamation of things, something we'll talk about over and over again, whether it's com combining Western and Eastern sensibilities, whether it's taking different parts of different religions and putting them together to, to create the summons, or even just as I talked about, playing with the idea of what you expect from a story or what's supposed to be allowed. Of course, one of the big themes throughout the series, and, and they start, we'll get to it at the near the end of the plot here, technology versus fantasy, science fiction versus fantasy. And I think when you start with something like that, an idea where a lot of people would recoil like they do for the entire franchise or for individual games in the franchise. You recoil because that inherently doesn't make sense. And like with pretty much any game in the franchise, or I think with the franchise in general, if you don't recoil because it doesn't make sense to me that the seas could be stopped and the, or the seas could be raging and the wind could be stopped. If you're like, well, that's an absolutely fascinating idea. How could that be? I want to find out. Then this is the franchise, and hey, this is the podcast for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So on the northern continent, you can just go straight to the city of Provoca, which is also in need of a little light warrior help, but along the way it is possible to find Matoya's cave. And in Matoya's cave you will find the witch Matoya. And this is another thing that JRPGs in general and Final Fantasy in particular does very well. It will set up a problem that you can't fix right now. So in this case, Matoya, the witch, has lost her crystal. What exactly that means, it makes it clear that she can't see without it. But what the crystal is baffled me for a long time, uh, because I always thought it was her glasses. Yeah, she's lost her glasses. So in the game, all it says is, I've lost my crystal, and that's not 
that's not especially clear why you would need a crystal. Like I, I imagined her like looking through it, but in the Nintendo Power Strategy Guide, it calls it a crystal lens, which it doesn't call it in the game itself. So because it was a crystal lens, I, I just assumed it was her glasses. But then in the uh, Dawn of Souls remake, it's her crystal eye. So I don't know if Matoya has lost her glasses or has lost her eye or what. Either way, she can't see and she needs some help, which you can't provide. I love it. Again, it, it's te- is it technology, glasses? Is it magic, her magical eye? Is it a crystal ball, which is technology and magic? We don't know, but she's lost it. And of course, there's, there's only one person, well, four people who, who can find it. One of the other things uh, important about Matoya's cave is there is a broom, clearly a magical broom because it's moving on its own. And if you talk to the broom, it will teach you a spell. So I've got the strategy guide in front of me, and I'm looking at this screen cap, this uh, screen cap from the 1990 U.S. version, and the spell is Tekelis B Hesop, which is push B select backward. And if you push B select, you get the the overworld map, and that was the only way you got the overworld map, and that was the only clue to look at the overworld map, and uh, I just think that's a really cool way to do it. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things that we haven't really mentioned yet is that this game does not hold your hand in any way. It doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do. You have to talk to all of the villagers to figure out even that you're supposed to cross the bridge once it's been built. Uh, There's really nothing explicit. And for a franchise that would later go on to become known for how linear it is and kind of how heavy-handed or hand-holding it can be, getting you from place to place, uh, over-explaining certain things. I think it's really funny that the first game goes completely the opposite direction, even so far as to making you talk to a broom who spells some stuff out backwards, and that's the only way you can get the world map, which is just a common feature in pretty much any other RPG. But I think it's funny that it started out on that note of we're not going to do anything for you. And it's kind of now become known more for, I guess, the opposite of that. Whether you like that or not, I suppose, is is up to personal preference. I certainly dig this way, at least as much because now I know it's coming. So I'm not sure what that makes me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You you get to the town of Provoca, which has been taken over by pirates. It doesn't take a whole lot to uh, find the pirate captain, Bike, spelled B-I-K-K-E, uh, who then six his pirates on you, who are not that difficult to defeat, and in the time-worn tradition of pirates who have been defeated by light warriors, Captain Bike gives you his ship and renounces his piratical ways. <laughs> well, that was convenient. All right, all right. It's got our very first vehicle in the Final Fantasy franchise. Got ourselves yes. a boat. Ship. Yeah, ship. Pirate boat. Pirate Captain boat. Jack would be disappointed <laughs> in you're not knowing the difference between a boat and a ship. Indeed. Yeah, well, you can get in line with people who are disappointed. Uh, so where, where dost we sail on said ship? The easiest and most obvious place to go is Elfheim. This will be the first non-human race we'll run into. Both elves and dwarves appear in the original Final Fantasy. It was before Final Fantasy started uh, creating their own fantasy races. There are no Moogles or Chocobos in this game. Maybe there are in the remake, I don't recall, but certainly in the original there aren't. Right. And Elfheim, like Corneria, has got a problem. 
uh, Elfheim's problem is not that their prince has been kidnapped, but rather that he has been sleeping for the last five years. It's a magical sleep. They need some help to get him unsleepied. They need an herb. And if only we knew a witch who knew about an herb. <laughs> so so sleeping sleeping princes are woken up by herbs and, and sleeping princesses are woken up by kisses. Is that what we, we've learned? <laughs> not, not, not that there's been <laughs> to kiss the princess in this particular story, but okay, all right, fine guy. Five years and it takes an herb. No one else could find the herb. We got to get back to Matoya, but I'm pretty sure uh, it's a special I guess we herb. Do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we have those in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> so, doing some exploring around Elfland, you you hear about the evil dark elf Astos in the northwest castle, which is uh, falling down. It's uh, one of the few places in this game where you hear about some history of this world. Later Final Fantasies would go into great depth about the histories of their world. This one not so much. We get it here and we then we get it really at the end. But yeah, yeah. That, that, that's where it comes in big. But in the Northwest Castle you will run into Astos and rather than fighting Astos, he will convince the characters, if not the player, that no really he's the rightful ruler of this falling down castle but he's lost his crown. So you need to go down to the Marsh Cave and fight your way through various undead and mucks and gargoyles and whatnot until you find the crown. And then you can bring the crown back to Astos, who, surprise, really is a dark elf. And, and then you have to fight him. And fighting Astos will get you the crystal or the crystal lens or the crystal eye. And getting that will allow you to go to Matoya, who now that she can see, can prepare the herb that will wake up the elf. So our very first fetch quest, but it ended up being an important and memorable and interesting one. Fetch quests, of course, the bane of existence for many an RPG player. Uh, Final Fantasy XII would famously have some pretty monotonous fetch quests at the beginning. But I, I like the way that this one is built into the story a little bit, that we've already been introduced to Matoya. If you've bothered to go into her cave and, and learn about all that, and if you have, then you probably got a better idea of how to solve the problem once it presents itself. Yeah, just a nice little, again, right there in the first game, a, a trope that uh, many other will go on to uh, adopt just nice little fetch quest for the eye or the ball or the whatever. <laughs> I understand that fetch quests can be monotonous, but one of the things I like about them is that they give you as a player a connection to the people of the world. Oftentimes the, the quests are so grandiose that we're focused on such big events that and and we we maybe lose sight of you know if the world is well created then there are little people living there and some of them need some help too and just because we're light warriors or maybe perhaps because we are light warriors those adventures those fetch quests are as important and it gives you a connection to the world a connection to the people you know if i don't complete this adventure you know if i don't save the world well then what happens to matoya you know what happens right who are we saving the world for precisely so, yeah, I can understand why some people get frustrated with them, why, why some people find them monotonous, but I appreciate them on that level because I think that is a, a good way to get players interested in or invested in the world. Yeah, I agree. It really matters about how well you do it. That's really the most important part, and I think this is a decent one. And also, you mentioned the undead and the elves and the dwarves. It's kind of interesting that, again, a franchise that would become known, I think, for people who don't 
really play the games as much, but maybe see them from afar and are somewhat interested. One of the things they know is that it, they've got their own monsters and they've got their own creatures. Like you mentioned, whether it's Moogles and Chocobos or all the stuff that comes along in the Evilist franchises and, and, and those kinds of things. But here in the first game, I mean, we've got dwarves and elves and, and zombies and vampires. It's, it's your standard fantasy fare. Uh, it would take them until at least, I guess, the next game to really explode their creativity in terms of the, the types of beings who could inhabit their worlds. Right. And and they were very clearly inspired by, like you were saying, uh, classic fantasy, uh, which at this point in, in the mid and late 80s was largely defined by Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax, who was uh, himself strongly influenced by Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So those those classic fantasy elements come f- largely from that Norse tradition. But as we continue here, we will see that Final Fantasy draws not just from that tradition, though most strongly from it, I think, but also from others. Back on track now. We've defeated Astos for being a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> Lion for that's an interesting way to uh, no political commentary there, right? About how somebody could just usurp a crown or a kingdom by just pretending, by just being a good pretender, by being a good actor, by maybe not actually doing anything other than looking and sounding like a king. Yeah, certainly no political commentary to be had there. Or at least he says he looks and sounds like a king. Well, as long as he says it, then yeah. So from there. You go to the Dwarf Cave, or in the remake, Mount Duragar, and there you will run into the dwarves, and the dwarves can get you out of this sort of interior sea you're in. You can sail around this interior sea. Mm-hmm. Rally ho. Rally ho, indeed. And <laughs> there's, a, there's a character here, the, the blacksmith, the dwarven blacksmith, who needs adamant to create the Excalibur, spelled X-C-A-L-I, uh, no, X-C-A-L-B-E-R. Excalibur. The Excalibur. <laughs> the, the, As wielded the sword by that, that, they, that you don't want to call in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> don't drunk tweet your Excalibur. Um, don't drunk tweet your Excalibur. Oh, for you sake. were making an Xavier joke, and I cut your, no. yours was going to be bad. No, 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 no. <laughs> in any case, uh, that's one of those things that gets cleaned up in the remake. They don't just call it the Excalibur. So, in any case, you can. There's another dwarf there, Narek who will use uh, the TNT you picked up from one of the hidden chests in Corneria after, after you woke up the Elf Prince, and he will basically create a, a strait in this part of the world where you can sail out and go to new continents and continue your quest. And this is where we've been hearing about the, uh, the fiends all this time from NPCs, and this is where we finally actually start to pursue those four fiends The next town you go to is the town of Melmond. Melmond is where you hear about vampires and titans and the cavern of Earth. You can gear up and you can get going. And yeah, we we are really on the quest now. Vampires are another one that we're not sure ever appears again in the series. And as we go back through, we'll be on a lookout as we're doing these and and doing our research for each one. But I think... Final Fantasy 1 might be the first and only time we see vampires in a Final Fantasy game. As far as I recall, I think there might have been some in World of Final Fantasy. Okay. Maybe. And I, I suppose how you classify Vincent. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could 
could be interesting, but but just straight up, you know, your classic blood drinking vampires. Right. So again, there's there's a little bit of fetch quest here, but you you defeat the vampire to get the ruby because the titan will eat the ruby, and then will let you pass. You don't fight the titan. Once you feed him the ruby, he lets you pass, and you can move on to the earth cave. And the earth cave is where you will find the first fiend, the fiend of earth, the lich, another undead staple. So far, these bosses have been pretty much pushovers. Garland, Astos, no problem. The vampire even, not that hard. But the lich, the lich is a real fight. If you're not ready for the lich, you are going to be the one who is undeaded. I, I lich will knock you all down. Lich has the potential to knock you down. Once you've defeated the Lich, you're, you're a quarter of the way through the adventure. You've done your thing. You're feeling good. You are ready to, to move on to bigger, badder things. So once you've defeated the Lich, the next place you go is Crescent Lake. Crescent Lake is a little town next to a lake in the shape of a crescent. Hey! <laughs> well named. Yeah, yeah. Well done. It is on the edge of this, uh, of this big old mountain range that is a maze, and the only way to get through the mountain range is on a canoe. Fortunately, in Crescent Lake, there is a circle of sages. The sages are the ones who know about the prophecy of the Warriors of Light, and, and one of them is Lucan, presumably the head of the sages. He's also the one who gives you your canoe. And he's the one who tells you that we knew this was going to happen, we knew that the natural way of things was going to be thrown into chaos, and that the elemental crystals would lose their light, that four light warriors would appear with them, and that they, you know, he states with, with some confidence that the Warriors of Light are going to put things right. So no pressure. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's always nice when your your group of sages can give you a bunch of ambiguous information and then say, hey, good on you. Go. But but again, establishing an, an, an early trope, I guess Lucan is your first Bugenhagen, or however you pronounce his name in Final Fantasy VII. Even there's a, a sequence in Final Fantasy X where Seymour Guado takes you through his explanation of the history of Xanarkand and the rise of, of the Empire Waiter. So, so they give you sort of right about in the middle of the game, some character steps forward and says, well, don't you understand there is this great grand history or, or whatever it may be. I think Bugenhagen is probably my favorite one where he, he talks about the nature of the life stream and, and the planet existing uh, and all these ones. And so in the very first one, it's a far tamer version of that, which is just, oh, yeah, no, we knew that the, the seas raging and the wind stopping thing. No, we knew. We knew. <laughs> it we seemed strange to us. We wondered yeah. if it was a translation error. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that's good. Uh, it wouldn't be great if they broke the fourth wall like that. We, we wouldn't get any fourth wall breaking for several more. At least until, I don't know, eight? 
<laughs> well, 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 we'll talk well, about that later. Yeah, okay, man. So in any case, the Circle of Sages send you to the Gurgu Volcano in the original version, or Mount Golg, Golg. in the remake. Golg. G-U-L-G. So again, that might be the uh, the L-R translation Gurgle. error that you often get from... <laughs> <laughs> Mount Gurgle. Well, because lava does, after it all, does. gurgle. Yeah. Especially when the seas are raging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the volcano level is pretty straightforward. Uh, walk through the lava and get damaged. Fight a bunch of lava monsters. Use your ice weapons to hurt them more. And then finally, the you, you get to the fire fiend. Uh, pretty quickly, I would say, after the earth fiend. Uh, in the original version, she's called Carrie. She's a, a, a giant snake tail, slash body, slash knee, with the top of a woman with the torso and, and head and arms of a woman. She's six arms. She's got a bunch of swords. So she's called Carrie in the in the original 90s version and then Merilith in the remake. And we were talking earlier about other fantastical influences and a Merilith is a, a Hindu demon, uh, a monster out of Hindu mythology. So on the one hand, strongly influenced by Gary Gygax and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, but also influenced by other world religions also interestingly named because we're gonna see like i mentioned there are references to chaos and fiends and liches and tiamats even you know we'll get to that in a minute but carrie or 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 merlith it's not brought up again i don't think at any other point in the franchise there's plenty of stuff shiva being the most obvious hindu deity that they just, just straight took the name and and even though she's got just the two arms normal number of arms you know uh, right right uh, even though based Shiva. on hindu mythology and and there are often multiple faces multiple arms representing you know strength and, and intelligence and whatnot uh so yeah that that this one doesn't show up again is interesting because yeah, definitely kraken show kraken show up again yeah right and, and definitely Tiamat shows up again. So, so vampires and Carrie, I guess they decided, nah. <laughs> eh, we'll do other stuff. We'll do other stuff. Oh, wait. There is one. There is one other Merilith, at the very least one other Merilith that I can think of in the 15 universe. So from the very first uh, game yeah. all the way okay. to the very most recent game, though I'm not sure it's in the game. But it no, plays... I, I don't yeah. recall... But I know the thing you're... So say the thing. I know the thing you're going to say, but say it. So Merilith plays a huge role in the Brotherhood, I guess you'd call it, yeah. collection of short... I thought that was really cool, the way they put those out, by the way. A lot of love for yeah, Kingsclave. Uh, and uh, the Brotherhood stuff. I really liked the way they did that. And Merilith presented as a gigantic blue snake lady with a bunch of arms and swords yeah. and awesome design. Uh, plays a big role in that. It begins with Noctis having like a memory of her and fire and scariness. It's one of his earliest childhood memories is of a Merilith. Right, yeah. And then it concludes again, spoilers, spoilers, but w- with an encounter, you he has to defeat her at the end of it. And uh, well, I'm pretty sure it kills his mother. I'm pretty or, sure that's what happens, yeah. Yeah. There's a the the empire is using monsters as we'll get into more when we talk about empires and and Final Fantasy 15, uh, but yeah the the empire drops this monster on the convoy that includes the prince and I'm pretty sure his mother and mom doesn't make it, and then Prince Sean or excuse me King Sean Bean shows up and 
and takes care of business. Yeah. But that is definitely a Marilith. They they yeah. call it Marilith and everything. King Sean being Lucis Callum the second, the lastest king of Lucis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if uh, if we're wrong, Drew, and there yeah. are other Marilith in Final Fantasy, how should they contact us to let us know how wrong we are? That's right. Always going to be the possibility. <laughs> we do not have encyclopedic memories, so always fun. If you can think of more Marilis, and there are also like 55 official Final Fantasy games, if you include like all the side stuff, and there Chocobo are probably Dungeon. Yeah, 10 to 15 of those we haven't played, maybe. So yeah, you can always hit us up at FFWeeklyPod on Twitter, or send an email to FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. So, so the next thing you do, the sages tell you there's, there's this item in the original. It's called the floater, which has some connotations that maybe they weren't going for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sinker before you can get to the floater. <laughs> oh, and in, the, uh, and in Dawn of Souls, it's called the Levistone, mm, which maybe better. has the correct connotation yeah. for an English-speaking audience. I, b- I believe so, yeah. Especially a, an English-speaking teenage audience. You could say it has a bit more gravity. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> I never do those either. Yes, you do. You are such a fibber. You do those all the time. Just because I, I you don't record them all. <laughs> I try not to pun, but I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. That's also a fib. You totally could have helped yourself. <laughs> the Levistone is found in the ice cave. you got to defeat an evil eye, and you get the Levistone... Then they send you to the Rukon Desert, and with the Levistone and or Floater, you can claim the airship. And with the airship, the sky is yours. Now, hold on a minute. I thought we were in a strictly speaking fantasy setting by inspired by Tolkien and Gygax and 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 what an airship. What do you mean flying around in the sky? Again, just one of my favorite <laughs> and it's just why a part of why I love this franchise so much, man. I love that stuff because it's just it, it refuses to ever be one thing. It oftentimes refuses to just be five things. <laughs> but obviously airships being an indelible image of Final Fantasy, I'm sure if you had your top ten, maybe that's something we could do, not necessarily order them as a top ten, but what are the images? You've got crystals, moogles, chocobos airships and that you know still to this day people i think when they think of fantasy they put it inside this box where no kind of technology or advanced anything can exist and right there in the first game making it clear nope this is different yeah we we did all this fantasy stuff up to this point and this is maybe opening our eyes or getting ready to open our eyes to there is more to this world than just being the medieval fantasy type setting that we're used to. So after you get your airship and you can fly around, you can find the Cardia Islands. 
And the Cardia Islands are home to Bahamut. Cardiacians. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> Cardia Island is home to the Cardiacians, right? No, keeping I'm keeping up sorry. with Cardian dragons. Yeah, yeah. Boo. Terrible. We're bad people. I'm sorry. It's home to Bahamut, king of the dragons. I'm pretty sure I'm a good person. I'm pretty sure you're the bad one. <laughs> I think that's true. Bahamut is at the end of this very long tunnel, and I had been trained at this point by Final Fantasy to fear the people sitting in thrones at the ends of long tunnels. Yeah. So in my first experience with this, I geared up. I made sure I had all my strongest weapons, that I you know, I had enough potions, that I was at full life and, and full magic. And then Bahamut does not, in fact, engage you in battle, but sends you on a quest. He sends you to the Citadel of Trials to find a token to prove your worth. And that token is a rat tail. It's a chopped off rat tail, a moldy, gross, disgusting thing in a, in a treasure chest at the end of this frickin' dungeon, the Citadel of Trials, or the Castle of Ordeal in the 1990 version. Yeah. <laughs> the Fortress of Barriers. The, uh... <laughs> oh, goodness sake. <laughs> the Wall of uh, Inconvenience. Right, the Moat of Impediments. <laughs> I, I love the castle of ordeals there was something recently that that paid homage to that too that had a, a castle of ordeals or a trial of ordeals but the word ordeals did always make it sound to me like slightly more than an inconvenience <laughs> it's a bit of an ordeal becoming Aww. finding that rat tail and and well getting to one of the coolest moments in the history of video games certainly at the time this was a big thing for me. This was one of the things that made me understand that Final Fantasy was a cut above because it changed the status quo. You've defeated two of the fiends, there are two fiends left to go, and suddenly your character classes get an upgrade. The fighter becomes a knight, or the warrior becomes a knight, depending on your version. The thief becomes a ninja. The black belt or monk becomes a master, presumably a master black belt or a monk. Uh, the red mage becomes a red wizard white mage becomes a white wizard and the black mage becomes a black wizard and it is just one of the coolest things that I can ever remember doing in a game I mean I know looking back especially with Final Fantasy's plethora of classes or jobs as they call them the, the job system in general that this is maybe a little tame but to me I just I thought it was so cool and I still think it's so cool it was the first of that kind of feeling that you get whether it's later in Final Fantasy 4 when Cecil becomes a paladin or whether yeah. it's just in general that feeling of you have earned the upgrade and you've opened up a new job class in Final Fantasy V or Three or Tactics. Yeah, yes. It, but it was the first time you got to experience that, oh, you mean what I've been doing this whole time with my characters isn't just to make them stronger and win the day at the end. I also get rewarded with this change in everything that they can do with the way that they look. They, now they look way badass. The polygon count went up. I don't think it did. But, you know, it's like they, no, no, they're, no, taller. they're taller than they were They're definitely taller. <laughs> they're definitely taller in the 1990 version. They have that sort of super deformed chibi look where the yeah. heads are especially big and and when they get those upgrades, the heads shrink a little bit, making them look taller, making them look a little more adult, a little stronger. It, it really is a, a big change, especially in that original version, and it's just so cool. 
And back then that didn't happen in, in video games right. or, you know, you just wouldn't have that kind of change. So it was definitely something unique to the franchise. Right. There, there would be power-ups and whatnot, but they usually didn't last and it, it wasn't a... Uh... It wasn't a status quo change like like this was. All right, so we've got our new powers, our new height. We can now go on all the rides. We, we're, we're, we're now tall enough to go on any rides in the world of Final Fantasy One, <laughs> And so it's off <laughs> to seek the final two fiends. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who has reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by following us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or sending an email to FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. You can also visit us at Patreon.com slash FFWeekly for more episodes and content, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when we dive into the depths of the Sea Shrine, climb the Mirage Tower, and try to make sense of a 2,000-year time loop. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget that if you need to listen to the next episode right away, it's available on Patreon at patreon.com slash ffweekly. And if you need more Final Fantasy content, comic book stuff, nerdy stuff, other video game stuff, go to patreon.com slash dcproductions.